please stand with me as we show honor and reverence to God's word. I'll ask you to read the words in bold from Esther chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman prepared. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promo promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Jeresh and all his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Sacramento. We're glad that you're joining us today. I want to make, uh, just say a special thank you to the Tarver family for leading us in worship today. The Tarver family, uh, the Tarver family plus one strange looking stepchild. <laughs> one of these is not like the others. We love you, Daniel. You probably heard the story of Aladdin. Maybe uh, you've read the story of Aladdin and his magical lamp. Maybe you've seen 
a movie version of it or two. Uh, you might want, uh, even as I'm suggesting it, maybe you uh, hear a song in your mind from Aladdin. What you might not know is that Aladdin is just one of a whole collection of stories that were originally told in Arabic. Um, they're hundreds of years old and they were compiled into one work that was originally known as 1001 Nights. It was actually published in English for the first time in 1706 under the title Arabian Nights. Sound familiar? Yeah, that's the title of the opening song in the Disney animated version of Aladdin. Right now I know it's playing in your head if you're familiar. <laughs> Originally, Aladdin, along with maybe several other heroes that you might have heard of, uh, people named uh, with names like Alibaba or Sinbad the Sailor, they, they were all part of this collection, A Thousand and One Nights or Arabian Nights. And according to the story of this book, um, there was a great Sasanian king named Shaharar. I'm going to try to get that right. Uh, and he became disillusioned with his first wife's infidelity. And so set up, he decided uh, shortly after her infidelity that he would take a new wife each day and then execute her in the morning before she could be unfaithful to him. Until one night when a young woman named Shahrazad was brought in to be the king's new wife, and knowing that her life depended on it, she begins to tell her new husband a story. And as she tells the story, she intentionally doesn't finish the tale, but instead leaves him, leaves her hero in some precarious or difficult dilemma each night so that he will let her live to finish the story the next day. We're told that this goes on for a thousand and one nights. A thousand and one Arabian nights. Many would say that Shahrazad is the originator, you might even call her the mother of the modern cliffhanger. Now, I know that for those who have been with us as we've been preaching through the book of Esther, if you were here last week, then it's probably been hard to sleep because Daniel preached Esther chapter 4 last week, and we learned about Esther and Mordecai's powerful enemy, Haman, and how he conspired to convince the king, Ahasuerus, to order the execution of every Jew in the Persian Empire. We learned that a young Queen Esther, the new queen who's basically just a reality TV star, the winner of a beauty contest, um, is exhorted by her cousin Mordecai to plead with her husband for her people. And we were left with these words, which I know has left you on the edge of your seat since last Sunday. She says, go to all the Jews, all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do, and then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And so, Esther chapter 4 ends on a cliffhanger. What will happen to Esther if she goes uninvited before the king? 
The law says that unless, she, unless he raises his scepter to her uh, or to any uh, uninvited guest to welcome them, they will be executed, including the queen. Well, what if she doesn't go? What if she fails if she does go? Will all the Jews die in a genocide in Persia? Well, I have some good news and I have some bad news this morning. The good news is that as we read, as Olivia led us in reading, Esther survives her unannounced visit to the king. An immediate crisis is averted. The bad news is that the passage today again ends in a cliffhanger. A gallows erected for the execution of her cousin Mordecai. And the fate of the Jews unresolved in the kingdom of Persia. It's almost as if we're just trying to get you to come back next week. (laughs) But before then, today's episode, Esther chapter 5 in three parts with a little intermission. Esther's meekness, Haman's malice, and an invitation to the throne room. Esther's meekness. After every Jew in Persia has fasted for three days, Esther takes her own life in her hands. Dressed, as we're told, in her royal robes, she stood in the inner court of the king's palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won his favor. She won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Esther has dodged the bullet, almost like the serial television show that left you on a cliffhanger and has already resolved that cliffhanger before the first commercial break in the next episode. She's dodged the immediate danger. And yet King Ahasuerus understands that Esther has taken uh, this, she's taken great risk to appear before him. It's not lost on him that she has come uninvited on a mission. And so he says to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you even up to half of my kingdom, which apparently is like a standard demonstration of the king's generosity in Persia. And everyone knows you're not actually supposed to ask for half of the kingdom. Nonetheless, given this moment and having survived a brush with death, Esther invites him to dinner. She says, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared. Why doesn't Esther make her move? Why doesn't she ask the big question she's come to try to save her people Why doesn't she make her move? Well, the king is enamored with her beauty and has already shown her such generosity. Well, maybe it's because she's overwhelmed by the sheer impossibility of the question that she knows she needs to ask. What she must request is actually quadruply unthinkable in the king's palace. Number one, she wants him to reverse an irreversible law. He's already made an edict that has been published throughout the empire in every language and sealed with the king's signet ring. It cannot be repealed. Two, she wants to ask the king to forfeit 10,000 talents of silver, which is the bounty slash bribe that Haman has promised him if he will let him carry out the genocide of the Jews. 
Three, she will be insisting that the king, with an already famously fragile ego, lose face publicly by retracting his previous edict. And ultimately, four, she would be outing herself as a Jew. She has secretly been a member of this people her husband has been told are subverting his authority. So maybe she's just overwhelmed and she uh, didn't think she would survive the entrance to the palace anyway. Or maybe Esther's meekness is more calculated. She knows that Ahasuerus has a history of rejecting strong women. Maybe she'll go softly, not be too direct. If you go hard and direct and outspoken like his first wife, Vashti, you lose your throne for sure. Maybe you lose your life. Maybe she knows he likes meekness, and so she'll give him meekness. Maybe she's maneuvering by the time her first banquet is complete, as we read, as we read about today. She's invited Haman and Ahasuerus to a banquet, and by the time the first banquet is complete, he has already twice offered Esther anything she wants, publicly offered her up to half of his kingdom. And she set the stage for him to do it a third time. Uh, he knows she wants more than dinner, and she's invited him back a third time, and he keeps promising to give whatever he want, what, give her whatever she wants. Maybe without knowing it, he is working his way into a position where he'll be virtually obligated to give her whatever she wants or truly lose face. Or maybe, like Shahrazad in the Arabian Nights, she's simply savoring survival and delaying the big ask for one more day. Whatever Esther's personal reasons for delaying, the story makes it clear that while Esther delays, God is at work. He's moving in and he's moving through the, the people and the decisions that they make, their own, uh, their own wills, their own desires, and God is using those things to accomplish his purpose and keep his promise, which is to save his people. Even the sinister desires of someone like Haman are not outside of God's sovereignty. And before he's through, before the book is finished, we'll discover that even as Hester, Esther hesitates and as Haman plots, God's broad and comprehensive plan is coming to fruition. And it's a plan not only to keep his promise and save his people, but to vindicate Mordecai and to rebuke Haman and to elevate Esther as the hero of Purim for centuries to come. Part two, Haman's malice. What's going on with Haman? Did you notice that his mood swings wildly from the beginning to the second half of the chapter? From one paragraph to the next. It says that he leaves the queen's banquet on top of the world and is in despair by the time he gets home. He is publicly honored with an invitation that no one else receives to have dinner with the king and queen, but can't get over a private snub from a subordinate co-worker on his way home. What fuels Haman's malice? 
He's already got a date on the books to annihilate the Jews. Why can't he just be patient and wait for Mordecai's death? Haman is a case study, I think, a case study of what's happening in all of our hearts. The Bible says that the human heart, the Bible says in various ways that the human heart is an idol factory. Our hearts are constantly taking things, even good things like a successful career or love or material possessions or sexual desire or a beautiful family, and our hearts take those things and we try to make those into ultimate things. We try to build our lives around them because we believe or we've been led to believe that that's the thing that will give me significance. I'll find my security and my identity in this thing. I'll find my purpose in, in reaching this goal or serving this end. And in the biblical sense, any desire of our hearts, honorable or dishonorable, can become an idol when it becomes the most important thing in our lives. Only God can fulfill those kind of expectations. Only only the creator and the father in heaven who loves us can bear the burden of telling us who we are and why we're here and what we're called to do. And anything that we seek to do what only God can do will ultimately not only disappoint us, but turn to dust in our hands and maybe destroy us. And so it's becoming clear, we look at Haman uh, in, in the story of Esther, it becomes pretty clear that what Haman desires above all else is to be esteemed, to be invited, to be in the room where it happens, to be perceived as significant and given a place of honor and adulation. It is the most important thing to him that he be honored by everyone. And when that idol is fed, when he gets invited by the king and queen to go to the banquet, uh, when he's singled out and given a place of honor, it says that he is joyful and glad of heart in verse 9. But when Mordecai, his subordinate, refuses to bow before him or show him respect on his way home from work, He's immediately despondent. Uh, When his fragile honor, based uh, on his identity as being affirmed by other people, um, is is being propped up, he feels blessed. And when his idol isn't honored, when he doesn't feel like he's being esteemed, he's crushed. Even though Nothing of substance has actually changed in his life. He hasn't lost his position. He has the same amount of power. He is in the same echelon that he began in the story. He has uh, nothing of objective substance has changed, and yet we've watched him uh, swing on this pendulum drastically. His mood is as fickle as the idol of his heart, and uh, His appetite for public respect can never be satiated because it's never enough. He goes home and he gathers his friends and his wife and he tries to put a balm on his wounded ego, right? He says, he gathers all these people so that they can listen to him boast. And he says, it says that Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons and all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he'd been advanced above all the officials and the servants of the king and invited by 
the queen to dine with the king as well. And I, I have one question about that paragraph, which is, do you think that his wife didn't know how many sons he had? <laughs> Can you... I, how do you identify the idols of your heart? If we could be humble enough and objective enough to trace our own lives and watch our own mood swings and see where our own anxiety explodes, be humble and objective enough to trace those things, trace them back to those things that we are believing will give us joy and fulfillment. Um, a joy and fulfillment that's disproportionate to their actual worth in reality. If we could trace our anger or our fear back to the thing that we feel like we have to protect at all costs or we will die, we'd be getting somewhere. And for some of us, by God's grace, we could begin to identify the desire or need that we have made ultimate in our hearts when we see the symptoms of our idolatry in our behavior and in our actions. The same way that those systems were, those symptoms were controlling Haman. If we can identify that people's affirmation is too big in our lives, that we live for what other people say about us, then maybe we could begin to apply the gospel in our hearts and realize that God's affirmation, uh, when God affirms our worth by sending his son as the price that he's willing to pay for us, if we were willing to engage with that sort of affirmation, then uh, we'd, we'd be able to move through a world where sometimes we get affirmed and sometimes we don't. If we could identify uh, some, if we could identify that it's some elusive definition of success that drives us and that we never quite reach and that we're exhausted because we're never achieving enough to satisfy that desire, then maybe we could begin to apply the gospel to our hearts and realize that when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, he accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for us and everything that was required to qualify us in God's eyes. And then we could set about the tasks of our lives in a way that pursues excellence and honors God but doesn't define us. If we realize that we have a desperation for companionship that is so unhealthy that it, it leads us either to unhealthy relationships because we're desperate to be with somebody or to sabotage good relationships because we're so insecure, then maybe we could begin to apply the gospel in our hearts and hear the words of the risen Lord Jesus who said, I will never leave you and forsake you. Behold, I am with you always to the ends of the age and then find secure companionship and be someone who people... Uh, come to to be with because of our security. But our tendency, our instinct, the hardwiring of our hearts is that when we get in those situations, uh, rather than gospel repentance, what we do is we feed the idol, right? When we're anxious and we're agitated and we can't find rest, rather than turning from that thing or that desire that has already proven to be uh, causing us angst, yeah, it's already proven to be unable to keep the promise that we hope it would fulfill to us. We lean in. We work harder and longer hours, even though the, the job has never provided the purpose we've looked for. We scroll longer looking for affirmation and encouragement and belonging and go to bed exhausted. 
grasping as our idol turns to sand in our hands. This, of course, is the devastating advice that Haman gets from his wife and his friends. They say, man, if it's Mordecai's honor or his demise that's going to make you happy, then go big. Build them a guy's a 50 cubit high gallows is 75 feet high. They're going to hang this guy where everybody can see him. Now, some of us, by God's grace, can begin to identify idols in our hearts, and I would I, I encourage us to pray to that end, to ask and pursue and read the scriptures to say, oh, this is about applying God's grace in my life. How do I do that? How did these characters do that or not do that? But for many of us, God in his mercy may have to destroy our idols, tear them down before they destroy us. And so when success is your idol and you feel like uh, you have to succeed and you'd be willing to kill uh, to get it, when you fail, it feels like you might die until you don't. And then you realize there's a God of grace, or in fact, success is not the God of grace. If control is your idol and you feel like you're not willing to give up control and you'd be willing to kill to keep it, and then you realize that you're in so deep that everything is out of your hands, and then you see that you survive, and that God is good and in control, working all things towards his purpose, you realize that some of the toppling and disaster that you thought would kill you is actually God's grace in your life leading you to himself. And if only that were true for Haman, who we see is willing to kill, he's preparing to kill Mordecai to satiate his hunger for acclaim and respect. It's heavy stuff. And so like a talking parrot in Aladdin, I think we should take a break or a little bit of comedy to lighten the mood. Remember how earlier, I think it was a few weeks ago, we talked about how the book of Esther is a satire. It's constantly poking fun at the powerful and uh, those things and issues that the world says will, uh, are all powerful. Remember how we uh, said that in the midst of the power of the empire of Persia and the culture that surrounds um, them, that the that surrounds us and demands our obedience and insists on its own power, the book of Esther makes fun of the powerful, pokes fun at the world's power. Just a couple of examples to lighten the mood. Remember how uh, earlier in the book, Ahasuerus banished Queen Vashti for refusing to, to appear when he called, and now he's welcoming Esther for insisting on appearing when she wasn't invited. In fact, now the queen is the one inviting the king to her banquet. 
Remember how the king and his wise men had a powwow and they ended up issuing this edict in chapter one. And here's the quote. It says that every man will be the master of his own household. Chapter one, verses 22. Now in uh, chapter five, verse five, it tells us that the king says, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther asks. And if you translated that more literally, he says, get Haman and we'll do whatever Esther says. The two most powerful men in the empire doing whatever she says and literally eating out of her hand. I'm telling you. Thank God for the invitation to live under a different kind of power. Not a laughable king like Ahasuerus or a fickle and uh, fleeting idol like the one that Haman serves, but a king who is strong and who is wise and merciful and good. So how do we find our way out from under the overmastering power of our own desires? How is it that someone like you or I could be welcomed into the throne room of such a good and wise king? especially after making such a mess of things, right? After chasing after idols and building gallows for our enemies, how is it that we get welcomed into the throne room and the the invitation in the gospel to come to God as our king is not like Shahrazad in Arabian Nights who had to continually entertain and prove to the king that she was worth keeping around. And it's not like Esther's treacherous approach to King Ahasuerus, hoping beyond reason that uh, randomly he would be in a good mood and that he would hold out his scepter and let us live. But the book of Hebrews tells us that with It instructs us that we are, as followers of Jesus, to with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Not because we deserve that welcome or that our sin or uh, our overmastering desire isn't a big deal. It's no big deal, just come in. But because we have an invitation into the throne room signed in blood. Our entrance into the throne room, our peace with God was purchased for us by Christ who died for our sin. God allowed him to take our place. He hung him high for all the world to see. For our idolatry and our treachery so that God could hold out a scepter of forgiveness to you and to me.